This episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast is sponsored in part by Law Enforcement Labor Services in Minnesota. Law Enforcement Labor Services, also known as LELS, is Minnesota's largest public safety labor union with over 7,000 Minnesota public safety members serving in all areas of public safety. Law enforcement, 911 dispatch centers, corrections, public safety administrative support personnel, and firefighters. Established in 1977, LELS serves over 260 different public safety agencies and over 450 locals across the state of Minnesota. With their administration, general counsel, three staff attorneys, and 14 business agents, LELS provides contract negotiations for better wages and benefits, grievance processing and representation, discipline representation, mediation and arbitration, assistance with representation for post-board hearings, and in-line-of-duty death benefits for survivor families. Find out more about Law Enforcement Labor Services at LELS.org. LELS.org. Episodes of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast may contain strong language and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Sheriff Scott Rose from Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's new episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. In each episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast, we'll share the details and the stories of how these men and women heroically lost their lives in the line of duty. Our mission is to help ensure their service and sacrifice is never forgotten. Thanks for spending some time with me today to remember and honor these fallen heroes. On this year, a new carbonated soft drink company was introduced. It was incorporated in Atlanta, Georgia, and their products would eventually be sold in over 200 countries worldwide, selling more than 1.8 billion beverages a day at their peak. The company was Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola, things go better with Coca-Cola, things go better with Coca-Cola, life is much more George C. Blickensdurfer patented the first portable typewriter this year, which became the world's bestseller, growing his company to be one of the largest typewriter manufacturers. At one point, employing about 200 people and producing 10,000 typewriters per year at its peak. Each new model came with a simple wooden carrying case, an extra type well, a dozen ink rolls, and a toolkit. Ellis Island opens as a U.S. immigration inspection station and would go on to be the gateway to the United States for more than 12 million people. A host of immigrants flock in, one million a year. They come in teeming steerages from Italy, Russia, Central Europe, hoping for a better life and dreaming that America's streets are paved with gold. The year was 1892. It had been two years since the Sea Wing disaster, when a strong squall line overturned the excursion vessel Sea Wing on Lake Pepin near Lake City, Minnesota. Sunday, July 13, 1890. A hot and humid day in Red Wing. 
Many of the town's residents hoped to cool off on the riverboat Sea Wing as it paddled downriver to visit the National Guard camp at Lake City. It all went well until the boat began its upriver trip. Approximately 215 people were on board the vessel when it overturned. As a result of the accident, 98 passengers drowned. An excursion barge that was being towed by the Sea Wing was either cut loose or broke loose and survived the disaster with its passengers unharmed. It is the worst Minnesota maritime disaster ever and one of the worst maritime disasters that occurred on the upper Mississippi River. While tornadoes had occurred earlier in the evening, farther north, more in the Twin Cities area, it was believed that the downburst winds from a thunderstorm were actually the cause of the accident. Lake City was a relatively young city. It had been incorporated about 20 years earlier and had become widely known for its attractive surroundings and bountiful fishing. It's known today as the home of water skiing. Known as the birthplace of water skiing and considered one of the top five sailing areas in the world, it's the opportunities that the immense Lake Pepin provide that help set Lake City apart. With the reliable valley winds. Back in 1892, Lake City was known for being a port market for grain. The state legislator had awarded the city supervisor special powers to establish the port due to the deep waters of Lake Pepin being deep enough for cargo carriers to port and load grains to be distributed throughout the Midwest. Daniel Bush was the son of Frank Bush. He was a highly respected citizen of Lake City, and Bush had struggled with mental illness for years. Bush had been deemed insane, and he had been committed to the Rochester Asylum in 1886 and had been treated there for a period of about two years before being released from the institution. For the last few years, he'd been staying in Lake City, and according to the locals, each year during the hot summer months, Bush would start to show symptoms of insanity. However, his symptoms were mild and most didn't feel he would become dangerous. Since his release, he'd been quiet and apparently harmless, but during his episodes, he would have a tendency towards instructing the Christian religion, and he'd been in constant attendance at religious exercises on Rest Island, which is near Lake City. Remember, this was decades before the 1920s Prohibition era, when gangsters and G-men fought their famed war over beer and booze. Back in the late 1890s, local residents in this region found themselves deeply enmeshed in the anti-alcohol movement. It was fueled in this area by the Women's Christian Temperance Union, spearheading the attacks on alcohol. John C. Woolley was a charismatic and reformed alcoholic, and he was the future candidate for president of the United States. He would bolster the WCTU's efforts in Goodhue County by building Rest Island on the north edge of Lake City. He referred to this as a home for inebriates and drunkards. Now, this regional refuge that some referred to as Woolley's Island was located on Lake Pepin in the county's Central Point Township. Their goal was to ban liquor in villages and townships, running bootleggers out of the county, and rooting out illegal liquor operations, operations that they would refer to as local blind pigs. At their WCTU convention, they stated, What issue is now of such vital importance as temperance? 
What enemy is so deserving of good men's best blows as the rum oligarchy, which fattens on the tears of widows and the woes of orphans, which grows rich and strong by filling thee with paupers, criminals, and lunatics? This was a hard sell in some of the region's communities. Now, Norwegian communities in some of the small village areas were all for dry counties or counties prohibiting liquor, while some of the German-American settled townships were for wet counties, which would allow alcohol. The Christian rallies on Rest Island had a Methodist and Episcopal influence that seemed to attract Daniel Bush. While staying at the Basie's Hotel, he'd worked helping build what would be the Russell Hotel, which would serve as the future headquarters of the WCTU and a sober house for recovering alcoholics. He would attend their Christian rallies, which fueled his mental illness to a level where, at some point in his mind, he believed he was the second coming of Christ. He was there to save sinners. It was Monday evening. July 25th, 1892. The Hanish Opera House had been in operation for about 18 years and was a two-story brick building located on Main Street, which is now Lakeshore Drive. It was a grand building with a seven-foot-wide stairway leading up to the Opera House from the Main Street with 30-foot ceilings, a stage across the front, and a balcony across the back. Seating in the Opera House was movable, which allowed for many kinds of entertainment, public dances, circuit road shows, German masquerades, boxing matches, even high school basketball games and more. That evening, the Schubert Symphony Club was scheduled to perform at the Opera House. The day before the concert, Bush had gone to the Graphic Sentinel office in town to request some flyers be printed. These flyers were going to announce Jesus Christ would be speaking at the Opera House Monday evening. When asked by the printer if he'd seen Jesus Christ lately, Bush replied, I am he. As the doors opened to the Opera House and people were congregating waiting for the concert, Bush was there, he was at the entrance, and he was trying to prevent people from going in. He explained to those trying to attend that Christ had nothing to do with the performances, and if they were for him or for Christ, if they were truly Christian, they would turn around and they would walk away. His attempt to convert the event into his own religious gathering was reported to the local city marshal, 49-year-old Bradley Rogers. Marshal Rogers had grown up in Indiana with 15 siblings before meeting his future wife, Cindy Dickinson, in Pennsylvania and heading to the Midwest for work. Eventually, they settled in Lake City, where he was appointed their top law enforcement man. Marshal Rogers responded, and he was able to calm Bush down and place him into custody, bringing him to the lockup where Bush would spend the night. He'd be safe there in lockup, and the show would go on at the Opera House. The following morning, the Marshal felt Bush had come around, that he felt he was again lucid, appeared to be more rational and more coherent, so Bush was released from custody and allowed to walk out. According to reports, Bush returned to his room at the Basel Hotel and retrieved a revolver from his suitcase. He then walked into the local hardware store, where he picked out a second revolver and some ammunition and then attempted to purchase them. The owner refused his purchase, yet Bush walked out the door with it anyway. Now he was armed with two revolvers and ammunition. 
At about 8.30 a.m., Bush was now marching down the street, talking loudly, loading the revolvers as he marched preaching religion again. As Bush was nearing the Dwell Brothers store, word quickly got to Marshal Rogers, and he responded once again to confront Bush. The Marshal dealt with Bush the night before. He was known to the locals, and he was not known to be dangerous. So the Marshal again confronted Bush on the street and tried to convince him to give up the weapons. They were now by the bank and by M.O. Kemp's store when Bush backed up, pulled one of the revolvers, and fired three rounds at the marshal. One of them struck Marshal Rogers between the eyes. After he shot Marshal Rogers, Bush turned and walked up Center Street to Main, turned on to Lyon Avenue, and then turned again on High Street, continuing to the corner of Center, where he stood at bay as a large number of men were now headed his way, armed with weapons of all kinds. The locals said it was a miracle that nobody else was killed at this point, as Bush now had two revolvers firing right and left at his pursuers. The pursuers, who were armed with birdshot, hit Bush with a load during the gunfire, but he continued to run up the street, fleeing the large posse of men chasing him. When he reached Garden Street, he turned to the right, and he ran into St. Mary's Cathedral Church and hid behind the altar, but not before being struck again by a load of shot from one of the men. Bush then started firing shots from the windows towards the men again. The men returned fire, shooting several rounds through the windows at Bush. Some of the men entered the church and positioned themselves in the gallery outside the worship area where Bush was hiding. After watching the gunfire for some time and then exchanging a few shots himself, night watchman Harry Dressen, who was among the pursuers in the church, rushed Bush to overpower him and in doing so was also struck by shot in the wrist and in his hat, punching several holes in it, but not seriously enough to injure him. Even though he had been struck himself, Dressen overpowered Bush and brought him back to the lockup. When captured, Bush had also been hit several times with shot and he was covered in blood. While most newspaper accounts reported his wounds as possibly fatal, probably after seeing him covered with blood like he was, he proved them wrong and he was held in lockup to recover and to be tried for killing Marshal Bradley Rogers. Bush would eventually have a hearing before Justice Romick, where he was committed to the county jail in Wabasha, 15 minutes southeast of Lake City along the Mississippi River, and he was transported there later that evening. When Bush was interviewed in the jail, he again declared himself the second Christ who has been laboring since infancy to save the world. Those were his words. He declared that it was necessary to kill Marshal Rogers in order to accomplish this end. He said he constantly urged the sheriff to take him to the hall, claiming that there were large audiences waiting to hear him preach. Now, on some matters, he seemed fairly rational, but locals would tell you that religion was Bush's hobby, and on that subject, he was a maniac. Back in Lake City, Marshal Rogers was taken to his home, where he lingered in an unconscious state for a few short hours, where he then died from his gunshot injuries. The Lake City Mayor and City Council met shortly afterwards, passing a resolution, among other things, agreeing to cover the funeral expenses, expected to be around $125. 
The obituary, published in a later version of the newspaper, stated, This city will look long and earnest before it finds a man to fill his place, as he was always on the lookout for the city's best interests. He died doing his duty, and not wishing to be harsh, gave Bush the advantage which he took. Mrs. Rogers took the remains of her late husband back to their old home in Pennsylvania for internment, leaving on Thursday. She does not expect to return again, much to the regret of her many warm friends. Marshall Rogers was returned for burial to Blooming Valley, which is in Crawford County, Pennsylvania. He was survived by his wife, Lenny, and son, Frederick. There are no records indicating what happened to Daniel Bush after killing Marshall Rogers. It's believed that he likely died in an asylum where he should have been kept all along. Bradley Rogers was known in his community to be courteous. He was a gentleman. He was a good officer. He was one who really, really cared about his community. Some accounts in the local papers took the position that Rogers was too kind, that he was too much of a gentleman and too trusting, which they implied led to his murder. Back then, there was often a city marshal, and in some larger communities, just a few night watchmen who served under him, similar to many of our smaller communities today, who have a local chief who serve and part-time officers who serve when the chief is off duty. Some would argue that cops working in smaller communities like Lake City have it better. They have it easier. They're much safer because less happens in these smaller communities. The reality is they take on all the same risks the larger city or county officers take on, albeit less frequently. What makes their calling more of a challenge and more dangerous is they often do it alone. Responding to incidents like these with Bush without any help, the type of call that larger agencies would never send just one officer to handle. These small community law enforcement officers don't have backup seconds or minutes away like in many of the bigger metros. They have, they have to manage and protect these communities, these families, alone. Back in 1892, Lake City had a population of just over 2,000 people. It was Marshall Rogers' responsibility. It was a calling that he took on, a commitment to ensure the safety of all those people in that community, a commitment that he followed through with all the way to the end. In the book John 15, 13, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. City Marshal Bradley Rogers lost his life that Tuesday, July 26th, 1892, doing just that. He likely saved the lives of others. He even likely saved Daniel Bush's life in giving his own. A true hero that we'll never forget. Thank you for spending the time to listen, learn about, and honor the memory of this fallen hero. Make sure you take the time to thank your local law enforcement for their service and their sacrifice. And don't forget to thank their families too. They also sacrifice so much for our safety. It's up to us to help ensure the sacrifices made by these fallen heroes and by their families are never forgotten. So please share this podcast with family and friends. Until next time, this is the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. I'm Scott Rose. Thanks for listening.